We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Mr. Chief Justice, the police of the court. They knocked on the door. Uh, they presented me with a warrant. I, I turned on the radio and it was gone. Dramatic scene in Boston today as federal officials raided the offices of Touch 106. They went in and tore the place up and took it all away. The fabric of the black community has been temporarily silenced by the I'll do that. It's about doing the right thing. Give me the opportunity. And the law basically said no. Every community should have a radio station. They shouldn't. This is Life of the Law. I'm Nancy Mullane. You're listening to a podcast that you probably downloaded straight onto your phone. And what we do with our podcast, the interviews, conversations, reporting, and production, owes a whole lot to a thing called radio. As a podcast, you can listen when you want and where you want. And we can produce what we want, when we want, and post it online. There really aren't any rules or limits. But not anyone can set up a radio transmitter and start broadcasting. Radio is limited by the laws of physics. There are only so many radio frequencies. And how those frequencies are regulated, well, that's the law. And that's what this story is all about. It's the story of two radio stations in Boston, community radio stations owned by African Americans. Both are gone. Life of the Law reporter Ian Koss begins Radio Silenced by spending some time with a man who listened to both and loved both, Greg Lawson. You know, silence is, I don't like silence. I got to hear something on. So radio is my life. <laughs> so uh, what, what do you listen to now? Um, I think it's 94.5, no, 96.9. You know, turn I, it up, see what's on? The radio sits right next to Greg's desk, always within arm's reach. His office is on the first floor of a brick public housing complex that Greg maintains for the city. He's been here for 22 years. Pipes are rattling on the low ceiling, and oversized rolls of toilet paper are stacked against the wall. Greg is dressed all in blue, blue jeans, Blue sweatshirt. Like, 90, you know, 94.5 is okay, 96.9 is okay, but they don't talk about the community. And that's what I really, really miss. You know what I'm saying? Too bad on radio, we don't have a choice anymore. It was taken away from us. Um, so we have to settle. Settle for what's on right now, so. Greg didn't always have to settle. As a kid, he had a radio station he could count on. A station that talked about the community and played the music that he wanted to hear. 
The station was at 1090 on the AM dial, and it was called WILD. Two minutes before eight. If I haven't played your favorite song yet, call me right now. What do you want us to call you? <laughs> oh, WILD, Patrick. We had a little small radio. It was the old school radio, the dials. You turn it and it's until you find the station. And yes, we would stay in and listen to the radio. We didn't have a television. WILD was my station. I mean, it was my my escape. Now you're up to date from WILD. My mother was she was very overprotective of us, you know, because she was a strong black woman raising four boys on her own. So when she left to go shopping, we'd stay in and watch our friends play out the window because she was afraid something would happen to us. She thought one of us would get shot by a straight bullet. So you could sit and listen to the radio and kind of look out the window and <laughs> watch your friends playing. Yep. And then when there was a song that I knew they would like, I would put the radio in the window with the music, and now they're out there dancing outside. Well, yeah, radio's always been a part of my life. This is WILD faithfully every day, all day. Until the only thing about it was at 6 p.m. it was shut off. WILD Boston now concludes its broadcast day. And sign up, then all you heard was just air. You know, like. This is how Greg first encountered the laws surrounding radio. You see, what Greg didn't realize as a kid is that radio is regulated, and WILD was only licensed to operate 12 hours a day. Like many small AM stations, it was forced to shut down at night to clear the airwaves for larger, more powerful stations. Now, this system of licenses and frequencies, it's at the heart of Greg's story. So we're going to take a big step back, about 100 years back, and take a look at how it all started. And the sea came rolling up. Many were drowned there and then. It's 1912, just before midnight. The Titanic has struck an iceberg, and the ship is taking on water. But fortunately, there is a state-of-the-art radio transmitter on board that is powerful enough to broadcast a distress signal to any ship within a 1,000 miles. The radio operator starts tapping out the letters SOS in Morse code again and again. The problem is, there were no protocols at that time for radio communication. There were no rules, even requiring ships to have a radio operator, or rules saying which frequencies they could use. And as a result, the nearest ship never gets the distress call. And because of the loss of life that that disaster caused, and the importance that radio communication could have played in saving more people, the government decided that it was best that we attempt to actually license those who should be able to use the airwaves. This is John Anderson. Assistant professor and the director of broadcast journalism at Brooklyn College. He's also an expert on radio regulation, and he's going to help walk us through the history piece of this story. So, back at the time of the Titanic disaster, this idea of wireless communication, of actually creating waves of electromagnetic energy that travel at the speed of light and can carry sound and information, it's, this idea has been around for a couple decades, but it was only just starting to find applications in daily life. Fast forward to the 1920s, 
and you get your first radio stations for the general public. And back in those days, all you needed to do in order to get a radio license was certify that you were a United States citizen, and the government was compelled to give you one. And once you had your license, you were free to set up your own transmitter, which could actually produce those electromagnetic waves. So more and more of these transmitters are coming online in businesses, universities, even in private homes. And that, in the 1920s, created a situation which has been popularly described of as chaos. And out of that came legislation, which was passed in 1926-27. And in there, licensing itself was more formalized, meaning that the regulatory body could specify when a station could broadcast Uh, on what frequency and with how much power. Now, the government could actually decide who gets to broadcast and who doesn't. And to determine who got such a special privilege, they came up with this phrase. You were supposed to demonstrate that you were serving something called the public interest, convenience, and necessity. And that phrase became a kind of guiding motto for the Federal Communications Commission or FCC, which was created by Congress in 1934 and still regulates radio today. Uh, can affect the FCC's authority to act the public interest, conven- convenience, or necessity. And he's right. FCC only uh, if they are found to serve the public interest, convenience, and necessity. let me make necessity. that clear. All uh, over communication. It is so The problem is the Federal Communications Commission never and has never formally defined what the public interest, convenience, and necessity actually is. And as you can imagine, the phrase can be interpreted in different ways, especially by people with particular economic interests, like these guys. By the 1930s, radio was a big business, with nationwide networks like NBC, CBS, And by and large, the FCC's attitude towards this idea of the public interest is, well... Radio stations should endeavor to serve the largest audiences possible. The welcome voice of NBC... If you were a member of, say, a minority community, if you were a member of a labor union, by the way the regulation was interpreted in those early years, that was not a sufficient rationale to actually get a license. And the reason the FCC was so exclusive is that there are only so many licenses they can give out. That's because, if you think about it, each license is for a specific frequency. Meaning, if you have that license, then only your transmitter can create radio waves at that frequency. And radio communication only works within a certain range of frequencies. That's what separates over-the-air broadcasting from all other forms of media, is there is a limited amount of space to put stations on the dial. And you tie that into the notion of maximizing a station's potential audience, you effectively marginalize any sort of specialty or minority programming. It's built into the DNA of the regulatory system. So to recap, there can only be a limited number of stations and each one is supposed to serve the largest audience possible. The question is, how do you reconcile that legal perspective with Greg's personal perspective? Every community should have a radio station. Over time, the FCC and Congress have tried different policies for managing that tension. 
So, for example, there have been special low-power licenses for small stations and ownership caps that prevented one company from buying up too many stations. These are the kinds of policies that have guided the fate of black radio in Boston, which brings us back to the story of WILD. Before we even get to WILD, do you want me to introduce myself or anything? Okay. My name is Donna Halper. I'm the author of a book about the history of Boston radio. And when Donna Halper was growing up in Boston in the 1950s, WILD was on the air. But at that time, and this is before Greg was even born, WILD, like all stations in Boston, was white-owned. The first black-owned station was WERD in Atlanta, Georgia, which went on the air in 1949. But for the most part, black radio starts really slowly. And in a lot of cities, it doesn't hardly start at all. And Boston is one of those cities. Then, in the 1970s, the FCC they decide to actively promote media diversity by offering a tax incentive for minority ownership. And two years after that policy is introduced... Ken Nash was a black businessman, and he really wanted to own a radio station. And WILD was available, and so he bought it in 1980. Rick Anderson was a DJ at WILD, and he remembers that time well. When I got in, it was the 80s. You know, gold chains, long hair, that kind of thing. So it was real urban. Ken was a fastidious, meticulous brother from the upper crust end of New York. He was very refined, very reserved, but he was a hell of a businessman. And he was all about the community. That I can tell you. And it wasn't just playing the music. It was also community events. It was also doing public affairs. The News 109 Job Exchange, a public service of W. There were turkey drives, toy drives, job fairs. In the summertime, it was the kite festival. Millions of kites in the air. Huge. I mean, they have all these different artists that come out and will perform for free. We got a chance to come out of the radio station and go into the community. And for local kids like Greg, there was also the chance to come into the radio station itself. I never forget I won a, a record. Yep, it was like a temp caller. You're the winner. And I was like, I won? And it was like, uh, you can come down and pick the record up between today and such and such time. And I remember saying, I gotta go now. The lucky name. Remember Greg's overprotective mom and how the kids weren't supposed to leave the house? Well, when I won the record, she left to go somewhere. I remember my house from Warner Street, where WRD was located, was probably about eight blocks. And I remember my brother saying, you're not going to make it back. You're not going to make it back. I said, like, I'm going to make it back. I remember running, running all the way there to pick up my prize. And I'm, I'm running, and I'm sweating. I get there, you know, I go in, and, you know, of course they wanted to, like, talk a little bit. And I remember saying, you know, trying to hurry up and get out of there because I need to get back home. I just boogied all the way back home. I ran, I ran, I got there, I made it home. And she never knew I left and went all the way down WRD to pick up a record that I want on radio. I think it was Larry Graham, One in a Million. I think that's a song, because I remember playing it a million times, a million times, to the point where I was like, are you ever going to give that record a, a break? What'd you get from anyway? 
I'm out on Warren Street now, in front of the old WILD studio, and I'm just trying to picture this scene that Greg described. He's out of breath, he's running up these steps to his local radio station, and just inside these doors, he knew he'd find his heroes. Skippy White, Coach Willie May, Elroy Smith, all the rest. All right here, in a plain brick building, eight blocks from his house. Now, if you're my age, under 30, let's say, This is probably not how you remember radio as a teenager. And that's because radio in America was transformed in the 1990s. Not by technology, but by the law. First, I want to refer again to the title of this bill, Telecommunications Competition and Deregulation Act of 1995. This is Trent Lott, the senator from Mississippi, speaking on the floor of Congress. It's been... 20 years that Congress has been trying, struggling, to get comprehensive communications reform without success. But we are on the verge of seeing that happen. The Telecom Act was initially designed to promote competition. This is John Anderson again. So prior to the Telecommunications Act of 1996, a company could only own like a maximum of four radio stations in any given market. And they could only own 40 stations nationwide, right? When the Telecommunications Act of 1996 was passed, the ownership cap locally was raised to eight stations, and it removed the national ownership cap. A lot of regulations were removed around this time. Remember that tax incentive from the 1970s, the one that encouraged minority ownership? That's gone too. And the result of all this deregulation is that more and more stations end up in the hands of a few mostly white owners. When the Telecom Act was passed in 1996, Donna Halper was working as a consultant for independent stations, including WILD. And she watched as they disappeared one by one. If you know that old video game Pac-Man, where it's like the little thingy gobbles up the bigger one, you know, the the gobble, gobble, gobble. And pretty soon, it's just this one big, and it's gobbled every, that's exactly what happened. W-I-L-D gets gobbled up. Here's Greg Lawson again. Just one day, he wasn't there no more. I, I didn't get the, I, didn't get, I missed the memo, I guess, that they were shutting down. And um, I kept, I called my brother and I'm like, what's up with I-L-D? What happened is that W-I-L-D's owner, who at that time was Ken Nash's widow, Bernadine, she sold the station to a national media chain called Radio One. Now, to be clear, No law forced owners like Nash to sell, but the law created an environment in which it was almost impossible for independent and locally owned stations to survive. Kind of like, you know, you're the last house on the block standing surrounded by luxury condos, and the luxury condo developer comes to you and says, I'll pay you 20 times what your house is worth in order for us to redevelop that lot. How many people are not going to take that? Um, But that's one of the things that really decimated minority ownership. And the data backs that up. According to a report published by the Civil Rights Forum on Communications Policy, in 1996 alone, 26 black-owned stations sold out to white-owned conglomerates, about 10% 
of all black-owned stations in the country. And of those 26, almost 20 were bought by a single company. That never would have been possible before 1996. Now, in the case of WILD, the media conglomerate that bought it up was itself black-owned, but the end result was really the same. Because when stations become consolidated like this, the next step is to cut costs. They cut the local staff, cut the local programming, cut studio space. And that's exactly what happened to WILD. Rick Anderson, the WILD DJ we met earlier, he watched it happen. And I had to stand at the door and watch a lot of my colleagues with their personal belongings and boxes and stuff walk out. And some of them in tears. People picketed, people marched, people missed it. That live and local voice that everybody had grown to love was gone. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. You may recall from the top of the show that we said this is a story of two radio stations. Well, WLD was the first. And when its new owners began to phase out the local programming around the year 2000, it left a big hole. One of the people who felt that hole was a man named Charles Clements. And I said, going off the air, how is that possible? How can you allow an institution like radio, black radio, disappear like that? So I kept hearing a lot of Caribbean stations on the FM dial. And I wanted to know, how is that possible? that they can have a radio station and we don't have one. I called the station up and then, the, you know, I asked the owner about, you know, this community radio station and he said, you don't need a license for it as long as it's 100 watts. I'm like, really? Can you show me how to build one? Giving you information to build a nation. Touch 106.1 FM. 2006, November 19th, 5 a.m. in the morning after prayer, hit the button, and uh, we went on the air. All right, all right, all right. The phone number here is 617. I think a friend said, oh, man, there's a new new radio station out that's like ILD. This is Greg Lawson again. I listened more and more, then I started seeing how they talked about stuff in my community. You can call in and voice your opinion. He would invite the politicians there, and he would let them have it. I mean, stuff you would never hear on 94.5, 96.9. These other stations are afraid to lose their ratings. Brother Charles, he had no fear of anyone. We've been joined by City Councilor Charles Yancey. And it wasn't just the local politicians who came on touch. Senator Elizabeth Warren, Senator Ed Markey, the Secretary of State, Kerry. Everybody who was anybody, okay? And they figured that it'll all work out at some point. I mean, Mr. Clemens said they were legal, so therefore they must be legal. And I don't think the average person was sitting up at night thinking, hmm, I wonder if he's legal or not. The station was not legal. It did not have a license. And despite what Charles Clemens may have been told, even low-power stations need a license to broadcast. He found that out pretty soon. Uh, within 30 days, I was visited by the 
Federal Communication Commission who said that our radio station was interfering with airplanes and other uh, radio stations. And it's like, there is no other radio station in Boston on 106.1 FM. Of course, I didn't want to interfere with airplanes, but I didn't know how that would happen considering we was only 100 watts which was a 3.5-mile radius. So I shut the station down. Clemens had a choice. He could try and play by the rules, which could mean taking touch off the air for good, or he could break the rules. Just because something's law doesn't make it right. I like to call us the Rosa Parks of radio, the Harriet Tubman of radio, the Malcolm X of radio, Dorothy Heights of radio, the Shaka Zulu of radio. Um, Everyone deserves a voice. And Clemens is not the only one who feels this way. Some call it pirate radio, others call it micro radio, but the point is, as long as there have been radio licenses, there have been people broadcasting without them. The people's choice, human rights radio. When the Telecom Act of 1996 happened, it was like adding gasoline to a small fire because many people began to realize that their local airwaves were being decimated. Where did my favorite morning DJ go? Where is my local news host? What has happened to my local radio dial that used to exemplify the community that I live in, right? And many people were disenfranchised and those people turned to micro radio as a way to protest. The FCC noticed And to their credit, they actually listened. So around the year 2000, the agency introduced a new program called Low Power FM. To the Congress regarding low power FM service. The idea was simple. There was no way the FCC could go out and shut down all these unlicensed stations. It would be like a nationwide game of whack-a-mole. You shut one down and it would just pop up somewhere else. It was much easier to try and make the stations legal. But since all the existing radio licenses were being bought up by the giant media conglomerates, the FCC would need to create a new kind of license, specifically for low-power stations like Touch. And with that in mind... When the FCC first proposed low-power FM in 1999, they included a provision that was popularly called an amnesty clause. And what the amnesty clause said was... If an unlicensed broadcaster shuts off their radio station after a certain number of days of this rule being published, we will allow you to still apply for an LPFM license. And everyone was pretty satisfied with that, with the exception of the National Association of Broadcasters and National Public Radio. Neither of those two organizations liked LPFM at all because they saw it as an inefficient use of spectrum that might cut into their listenership, which would hurt their ratings, which would hurt their revenues. So in 2000, 2001, uh, NAB and NPR went to Congress. The battle lines were clear. The FCC and community broadcasters wanted low power FM to happen. The radio industry did not. There was lobbying and litigating, measures and countermeasures, protests, marches. Finally, a compromise is reached in 2010, and the FCC begins issuing new LPFM licenses. Licensing new low-power FM stations. However, I was not eligible for a license. This is Charles Clemens again, the founder of Touch FM. And that was because 
when the Federal Communication visited Touch in 2007, they decided to give Charles Clemens a $17,000 fine for operating an unlicensed radio station. But I didn't know that once you're given a fine, that you could never, ever apply for a license for the rest of your life. You see, in that final compromise that Congress reached, the amnesty clause was stripped from the Low Power FM program, meaning any unlicensed broadcaster is forever forbidden from from the LPFM service. So there's a famous microradio activist by the name of Greg Ruggiero who said, it was kind of like the passage of the Civil Rights Act for everyone but Rosa Parks. So the folks who broke the law to change the law were precluded from having any benefits. And that led to the raid. April 17th, 2014. They knocked on the door, they rung the doorbell. Uh, they presented me with a warrant. It was official. I let them in around 11 a.m. It took them to about um, 3 o'clock in the afternoon to remove everything from out-of-touch 106.1 FM offices, turntables, microphones. They, they raped the fabric of the black community. So what's happening? What, what's, what's happening is that Touch 106.1 FM. A cell phone video hey. from the day of the raid shows Charles Clemens out in front of the station. They're underserved. And there's no way I can stand by and let my community be underserved. There's no way. If I have to go to jail for my community, I'll do that. If I have to die for my community, I'll do that. It's about doing the right thing. It'll be all right. It's about doing the right thing. This is a voice that's being silenced again for, for over 50 years, we had WYOD, an AM radio station. AM radio station. As Clemens keeps talking, federal agents in black jackets are walking in and out of the door behind him, dismantling the station he had built for almost a decade. And by this time, Greg Lawson, who lives just a few blocks away, has noticed. I, I turned on the radio, and it was gone. So I thought, you know, something was wrong with the radio, and so I, I flicked to other channels. Boston, that... All the channels were there, and I went back. What's going on? Two radio stations in one, in, in, in one lifetime, something's wrong, <laughs> you know? Now, I'm only 48 years old, so how, how do two major radio stations that, that targeted my community talked about things that were relevant to my life, you know, how they get shut down like that? I don't understand it, you know? Mm-hmm. So when the f- radio is first regulated, I was reading about this recently, right. said the radio would be used for the public interest, the public convenience, and the public necessity. Do you think the the federal government has lived up to that motto? No, not at all. Not at all. Unless they plan on having radios like Touch back on the air, then they would partially live up to it. But no, our community is suffering right now, and it's suffering from from lack of information that our, our, our people don't know. And uh, also, you have to remember, after the raid, like the mayor, Tom, Tom Menino, came out and was like, what the hell are you doing? And the governor came out and said, we can't believe you've just done this, FCC. Like, well, I thought you were supposed to here to protect the public interest. How does taking down one of the most meaningful voices on the air for 
Boston's black community, how is that serving the public interest? Public interest, convenience, and necessity, what does that even mean anymore? Once again, radio historian Donna Halper. Our system is based on commercial advertising. And in commercial broadcasting, you had to do what was mass appeal. I'm not saying I agree or disagree. I'm saying that's the system that got set up. So it's become a very squishy term, the public interest, convenience, and necessity. Everybody bows before the altar of it. But in a commercial system, it's about making a buck and getting those ratings. Radio is built on these contradictions. On the one hand, the airwaves are a public resource, but they're managed like a business. They belong to us, to the people, and yet we don't have a legal right to use them. And I don't mean to say that this tension is unique to radio. I mean, you could say the same thing about a national forest, right? But radio is different. And maybe it's different because it's invisible. What we're regulating here is a frequency of electromagnetic radiation. Some frequencies are assigned for Wi-Fi routers, some are for satellites, some are for radio stations, but every frequency is used for something. Go ahead and look on the back of your phone or whatever you're listening on. Somewhere on there, you will see a small FCC logo. And what that means is this device plays by the rules. It only uses the frequencies that it has been authorized to use by the federal government. And for the most part, because these frequencies are invisible, we don't think about the rules that govern them. That is, we don't think about them until one day you turn on your radio and your favorite station is gone. All right, let's go find this place. Seeing as this whole story started with WILD, that little station at 1090 on the AM dial, I wanted to know what happened to it after it was sold. It turns out that Radio One, the conglomerate that bought WLD back in 1999, they still own the license for its frequency, and they've been broadcasting on that frequency ever since they bought it. Radio One manages that broadcast from an office out in a nearby suburb. On my way there, I tuned in to AM 1090. This is what I heard. All right, we've crossed out of Boston, and mostly it looks like we're in the middle of a marsh, but I see an office park. I head across the parking lot, through a revolving door, up a flight of stairs, around a corner, and into a windowless room filled with the humming of computers. Uh, right now, it's a one-space area that has one, two, three, four, five computers. And what's happening is we're broadcasting through satellite, China Radio International. And this is WILD. Oh, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. <clears throat> this is, in 2016, what WILD is now. And it's been this way for over a decade, since the last of the local programming was phased out in 2006. There is no studio. There are no microphones, no turntables. All the station does now is rebroadcast content from elsewhere. In this case from mainland China. In fact, all that's really left of the old WILD is the man sitting in front of me. Perhaps you recognize his voice. This is Rick Anderson, the WILD disc jockey we heard from earlier. He's been around this station since the 1970s, 
since he was a kid, really. Now they call them interns, but back then I was the kid. So if somebody needed something, wait, get the kid. Where's the kid? So I'm In the radio business, yeah, Rick is an anomaly, someone who worked his whole life at one station. So he remembers when WILD was first bought by Ken Nash, the meticulous black businessman from New York. He was a hell of a businessman. And he remembers when the station was sold to Radio 1 in 1999. They were buying up everything. Somehow, Rick has stuck around through all those changes. Even after all the local staff and programming were cut, he stayed on, making sure that the transmitter kept working and the feed from the satellite kept coming in. And by a strange coincidence, this is his last day. The station has just been sold again. And fittingly, for a story about the loss of local radio, the new owners of WILD will be broadcasting exclusively state-owned radio from China. That, that happened as of 7 o'clock this morning. So they went through FCC approval, and that's what's happening. So ILD goes away for good. And that's as of today, that ownership? Of, uh, three hours ago. What was it? It's just after 10 o'clock now, so yeah. I mean, how does that feel that you're kind of the last man standing? Well, I, I, you know, I was prepped for it the first time. He means when the station was sold to Radio 1 in 1999 and moved out of its Boston studio, the one on Warren Street where Greg ran as a kid. On the day of the move, Rick was the last person there with the key. It was me, and I'm standing there, and it was just me and ILD. And the place looked like a war zone. They threw a bomb in there. Papers were all over the place. Things were ripped out. We left. Now here it is. The end of an era, and here I am today, the very last day, and I'm the guy with the key. <laughs> and I'm doing an interview with Ian. <laughs> so, you know, how do I feel personally? Uh, I wish that I could have been the one to buy the station. After our interview, Rick locked up. We went back down the stairs, through the revolving door, and across the parking lot. Driving back into the city, I scanned the radio dial again, like Greg Lawson used to do when ILD went off the air at night, just skipping from one station to the next, waiting for something to catch my ear. There's still some pirate stations out there, and even a new black-owned AM station that has a license. But for Greg, nothing has taken the place of WILD in touch. It's a community radio station. Anytime you can show up at, at the radio station and knock on the ring the bell, He'll invite you in. Come on in. That's what we need. We need that back. I mean, I, I don't know what, how much more I can say about it, except for every community should have a radio station. They should. A one in a million chance of a lifetime and life And said to me, a stroke of love called you. One in a million you. A one in a million you. Radio Silenced 
was reported and produced by Ian Koss. Our senior producer is Tony Gannon. Our post-production editors are Kirsten Jesuits Heidel and Rachel Kane. We want to thank Jason Laviglio, Chair and Associate Professor of Media and Communication Studies at the University of Maryland, for sharing his scholarship. Professor Laviglio is the author of Radio's Intimate Public, Network Broadcasting and Mass-Mediated Democracy. Our engineer was Steve Fox at KQED Radio in San Francisco. Music in this episode was composed by producer Ian Koss. If you like stories about the law but have gotten tripped up by the legal system, tune in to Life of the Law on iTunes. Take a few minutes to post your review, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter. Each time we publish a new episode, we send everyone who subscribed to our newsletter a behind-the-scenes look at Life of the Law that includes notes from our reporters and news about upcoming investigative reports. This week, Ian Koss takes us to his reporting on the streets of Boston. You can subscribe to our newsletter at lifeofthelaw.org. We're a nonprofit project of the Tide Center, and we're part of the Panoply Network of Podcasts from Slate. You can also find Life of the Law on PRX, Public Radio Exchange. We're funded by the Open Society Foundations, the Law and Society Association, the National Science Foundation, and by you. Visit our website, lifeofthelaw.org, and make a very much appreciated donation. We want to thank Dunstan Orchard, Jessica McKellar, and Charles Magnuson for their donations. Their dollars will directly support the work of our investigative journalists. Visit lifeofthelaw.org and follow the donate button. Next on Life of the Law, our team will go in studio at KQED Radio in San Francisco to talk about Radio Silenced, the law in the news, and to share a preview of our upcoming investigative report on opioid addiction and the law. Join us February 21st for Life of the Law's In Studio. That's next on Life of the Law. Visit our website and make a donation to support investigative journalism in 2017 and beyond. Your support is important. I'm Nancy Mullane. Thanks for listening.